in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd ask you to turn again this morning to the book of Galatians, the second chapter this week, verses 15 through 19. We're going to add a little bit to the text that we studied last week. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 19. And I do ask you each week, if you can, do what we try to do in our home, which is to remember to bring our Bibles. There are Bibles in the pew, but I don't want that to get you uh, lazy so that you don't get in the habit of making one Bible your own. Bibles you get to know not just through words, but thickness, through where in the Bible you can open up to what book. You can mark them. Um, it should be a personal book, and so we have Bibles in the pews for when you forget it and when people may not have their own Bible, and you're always free to take a Bible home from the pew and make it your Bible, and we'll replenish them. But this morning, I do ask you to follow along as we do read our scripture text. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul brings the history of the conflict over circumcision that divided the New Testament church up to that time. He brings that history to a close and he moves over into the actual doctrinal conflict proper. He's given enough background, and now he moves into the theology of justification. Or he moves to the question, what, or maybe better, whose righteousness is it that saves the believer, the Christian? Now let's read Galatians 2, verses 15 to 19. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, I know you wish that I'd continue with verses 20 and 21, but they will be another week. So, here's our text. Now, let's look at Paul's case. He's making an argument, and it is, uh, um, it's meaty, and it's also confusing. Uh, there are places in Paul which, as the beloved Apostle Peter says, are very difficult to understand, and this is one of those places. Now, first, what does he say? Well, I want to do some, uh, some review from last week. In verse 15, he says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. I want you to notice his use of this word, we. The Apostle Paul here is acknowledging the past superiority of the Jews and the inferiority of the Gentiles, similar to when Jesus said that he hadn't come for the Gentiles. And the Gentile woman said what? The Syrophoenician woman said, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. Uh, Americans were not at all comfortable with categorizing people, except 
only to affirm them. So, for instance, you can have Hispanic Americans and then celebrate their food and their culture. But you certainly ought not to characterize them in any negative way. Well, very clearly, Jesus with the Syrophoenician women and the Apostle Paul here with Gentiles is categorizing them negatively. He's, he's, he's uh, engaging in stereotyping, and it's accurate. Name with the Gentiles had no inheritance in the covenant community. And the only way they could get it would be by being circumcised. But in other words, by completely converting to Catholicism. I mean, excuse me. <laughs> okay, write that one down. <laughs> if you knew how many of the men that went to my seminary have converted to Catholicism, you'd know why I connect those two words. And it's been on my mind lately. Glad I didn't say orthodoxy. I do believe, by the way, it is a conversion to Catholicism. Not a proper one. Anyhow, uh, it reminds me of when Rob said, come back and worship us tonight. (laughs) You guys remember that one? (laughs) That was about on the same level. (laughs) Okay. Are we all back? Have I put enough buffer that we can forget that I said that? The only way that Gentiles could become a part of the covenant community was by going through a complete conversion to Judaism. And that would require circumcision. They could be a God-fearer and not have circumcision, but to be completely converted, they had to be circumcised. And so the Apostle Paul is pointing to the superiority of the Jews in the past. And he's using the word we. He's saying, I'm one of you. And he says natural. In other words, I was born one. You know, remember he appeals to his Roman citizenship at another place. And here he is saying, I I didn't have to go out and become a proselyte, but I myself was born a Jew. Okay, I know the superiority that you all are feeling and talking about and trying to get other people to go into. Now, in Romans 9, we see the Apostle Paul speaking similarly of the wonderful blessings and the spiritual superiority of being born a Jew in the time of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. They were born members of God's visible and his earthly covenant community. They were marked as such from birth by circumcision, and this brought them all these blessings. Romans 9, we read, he says, My brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, Jews, to whom, and then he says, belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from who is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God-blessed forever. In other words, Jesus is a Jew. And this is uh, something that is often forgotten in the discussions about whether Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ or any of the other works of the church are anti-Semitic. People forget that we worship Jesus Christ, who himself, according to the flesh, was a Jew. So here also, as in Galatians, in Romans 9 and in Galatians, Paul shows this blessing not in order to attribute right standing with God judicially to that membership, but to show that, good as it was, that membership was completely insufficient to do the work of redemption. Then, now. Only Jesus Christ could do the work by which any man would be justified before God. Only through faith in God's provision of a Messiah, one whose righteousness 
is able to cover our nakedness and our sin. Only through Christ's righteousness can any man, any woman, any boy, any girl be saved. As the Apostle Paul says here in our text in verse 16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, we see the impossibility of a truce or a ceasefire between these two sides of the conflict that were there in the church in Galatia and that existed throughout the New Testament church and that exists throughout the church today. Either the Jews continued to be God's people, his special people, and were correct in calling Gentiles to become Jews through circumcision in order to be saved. Or God was pleased to tear down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and from this point on to make them one in Christ and to save them all, not by being born into the Jewish nation or by being marked a Jew through circumcision, not through ethnic and legal works-based righteousness, but rather through faith in the one who alone was able to do the works of the law in perfection which is what's required, and who, having obeyed that law, gave himself up as a sin offering on the cross that all that look to him in faith may be saved. Now, this is the meaning behind Paul's statement in verse 16. Even we, in other words, yeah, good, clean Jews, covenant people, okay? Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Even we, he's speaking as a Jew by nature, he's pointing out to himself, he's pointing to himself and thereby to all other Jews, to natural born Jews, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. It is not just a Gentile thing to look to Jesus for saving righteousness. Whereas the Jews were able and are able to look to their own ethnic and covenantal and personal law keeping and, and simply add a dollop of Christ's righteousness to finish the brew. No, to the Jews also, Paul says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Now, this statement is entirely in opposition to the circumcision party. And this statement is entirely in opposition to anyone today who says that the Jews have a separate covenant that they can depend upon for salvation in eternity. There is no path to salvation except through Jesus Christ. Ethnic groups, past history, it doesn't matter. God is pleased to lift one up, and that one is his son. That's it. So, uh, to this day, we, Jews, Gentiles, all of us are one in Christ. Now, in Romans 9, 8, we read, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And ultimately, the promise is the promised one, which is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. The whole New Testament points back to the cross of Jesus Christ. And all of eternity has at its center the Son of Man who is lifted up. Ethnic groups, age, culture... Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, doesn't make any difference. All come to the cross of Christ. So then the question is, would the church in Galatia and would the church in Bloomington today choose circumcision and the other works of the law in the flesh, or would they choose faith in Jesus Christ alone? 
Would they choose salvation by blood descent or salvation by blood forgiveness, the blood of Jesus Christ? Here's the summary of the argument. Paul says, as it were, forget the Gentile sinners. We know they are outside the covenant and hopeless before God. But even we Jews who could claim all the privileges of the chosen people, even we had to realize no one could be justified by observing the law. We too, no less than the Gentiles, have been accepted by God through faith in Christ Jesus. And these are the words of Timothy George. So this is why Paul would write, for instance, in Philippians 3, and I'd like you to look there with me, please. Turn to the book of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 3, beginning with verse 2. Constant controversy dividing the church. And here we see this. Paul says there, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Again, the argument, what is the true circumcision? Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. Is he speaking about the Jews now? We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in what? Our own circumcision, our own flesh? No. In Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I am far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained for me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, what? Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, this is the theme of the New Testament. Again and again and again, the New Testament is the record of a controversy between those who want to trust in Jesus plus something and those who are completely satisfied in Christ alone. Now, as I've said many times, if this was a battle in the early church and if it was a battle during the time of the Reformation, the battle between imputed, foreign imputed righteousness and infused righteousness then certainly it is a battle today. And it's not just a battle between Protestants and Catholics. It's, uh, but it's a battle here in this church. It's a battle in the Presbyterian Church of America, my denomination. It is a constant battle. Why? Because uh, God hates pride. And it is always our nature to put something next to Christ and to justify ourselves with that something as well as Christ. Now, if you think about yourself, not me, but you, Think, what is it? What is it that you use to justify yourself along with the work of Jesus Christ? Some of you take pride in your ethnicity. And you view yourself as having a special cut on God because of your ethnic background. Now, I'm not talking about Bob, who is a Jew in the flesh. But I'm talking about some of you who might think that by being born, what, Wayne Huck is one-eighth Cherokee Indian? Uh, or one-fourth or something like that. What is it, Wayne? It's, uh, three sixteen. Oh, 316. <laughs> okay, Cherokee and Choctaw. So Cherokee is one and a half sixteenths then, right? <laughs> okay, so 
today in America, wouldn't it be possible for someone who is a believer to, uh, listening to the culture, feel somewhat superior in his ability to uh, celebrate his diversity, but also to have a sensitivity to the oppressed? And isn't Jesus all about uh, uh, having a special regard for the poor? And, and couldn't you see how somebody who is partially Native American, being taking pride in that and using that as a means of establishing their superiority over other Christians. Well, all right, you're not willing to buy that one. Okay, what about a mother who homeschools her children? Oh, oh, well, that one works a little better, doesn't it? Basically, because most Bible-believing Christians are conservative politically, and so we don't really give much of a rip about ethnicity, not many of us are taking pride in our minority status because not many of us are minorities. All right? But boy, when it comes to homeschooling. Or how about our children? Look at how they've grown up. Every one of them is walking with the Lord. Haven't you heard that a lot from parents? And praise God, every one of my children is walking with the Lord. And that doesn't justify me in the eyes of God. I don't know what would well, nobody says that, but don't you find yourself... In other words, what is it in your life that you establish next to the righteousness of Christ that you believe makes you somewhat, somewhat worthy, somewhat worthy of God's attention? Huh? Or, let me ask you this, what is it in your life that you think disqualifies you from God's attention this morning? I mean, maybe that's a better question. Let's enter through the back door and let's ask, what is it in your life that you think makes you unable to worship as you ought this morning? Well, whatever it is that makes you unable to worship God this morning is a clear indication that you are not yet resting in the righteousness of Christ. You say, well, wait a second. You fence the table when we have the Lord's Supper and you say, if I'm living in conscious rebellion against the Lord, I must not come to the table. Yeah, I am saying to you that you need to do your soul work by coming to the cross. But I'm not telling you that that thing, whatever that rebellion is, is of such an intensity that it, that it is able to uh, silence the cross and, and, and to bind your conscience and to make you again subject to the law. What I am saying to you is if you do not live by faith bringing that sin under the blood of Jesus Christ, then you may not come to the table and fellowship in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, about this time, you're thinking, well, it's double talk. And I'm, and I'm going to say to you, yes, it is double talk. This whole section of Paul is double talk. Why? Because there are controverted words. What does he mean by the law? What does he mean by justified? What does he mean by righteousness? What does he mean by all of these terms? And then, when we get to the end of the text, we're going to ask ourselves, what in the world does he mean when he says, for through the law, I died to the law? I mean, that's crazy-making. Well, that's the nature of truth, this truth of God's. Uh, so many of us want to make God's truth more simple than Scripture makes it. And we want to be able to, to uh, paint with a broad brush and remove some of the uh, nuances of Scripture, remove some of the finer points, and just say, I'm grace, and I never will let the word law fall on my lips, not for any purpose, never, 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 because, boy, that's such a dangerous thing that I can't allow it to ever have a place in my life. Or some of us say, you know, grace is such a dangerous thing 
deep inside. That's all I trust in. I want you to know that. But in terms of the woman sitting next to me in the pew, you know, she's not capable of trusting in grace. She needs to be a little bit under the law. And so I'm going to constantly keep my wife under discipline so that she doesn't become antinomian or a libertine or licentious, you know, or a lush. Okay? And really deep in my own heart, I know that if I were to really look at the grace of Jesus Christ and believe that only the righteousness of Christ is what saves us and makes us able to stand in the presence of God, I feel that I would not maybe live in a way that would please God. And so, let's remember that the Bible says that, you know, Greedy and gossip and, and envious and jealous and people who are the practicers of homosexuality and all these people, alcoholics, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Drug at, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, so, yes, grace alone, but you just can't come into the church on Sunday morning and confess your sins to God and expect that everything's okay. How many times do you think you can do that? like a man said to me last night, you know, how many times can I come to the Lord and ask Him to forgive me? I mean, you know, there has to be something beyond that for repentance. Well, what, what, what did Peter say to our Lord? Peter was trying to delimit his responsibility to forgive, right? He said to the Lord, how many times? You know, up to, you know, 15 times? 20 and Jesus said what? If a man comes and asks my forgiveness, how many times? And Jesus said 70 times 7. In other words, uh, the perfect number times 70. Okay, In other words, infinite. So then we think, okay, if that's what God requires of us, then on what basis does he require that of us? It's on the basis that God requires everything of us, namely that God himself is, is the perfections that we are to reflect. In other words, God himself forgives us infinitely when we come to him and cast ourselves on his mercy. In other words, if you come into church and you're not willing to confess your sin, because you've done it a hundred times, and you can't presume on the grace of God, all right? really what that is is that's a very twisted form of pride you are not willing to come to Christ the hundredth time with that sin and trust in him for forgiveness. Because why? Because you want to bring something in your hand as you come to Christ. But you can't. You know, little children, Cynthia in her mother's arms, she can't bring anything. Yeah, she's cute, and she hasn't learned some of the sins she'll learn. But she can't bring anything. And the older person who's reduced to being in their bed, the retarded child, the retarded adult, nobody can bring anything in their hands. They can only acknowledge that they bring nothing in their hands and that they're clinging to the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to do that, it's because you're an idolater. It's because you today are saying that in order to come to Christ, you have to be circumcised. But you're not saying circumcision, because Paul whooped up on that in the New Testament. 
And so it's homeschooling or it's, you know, I've got to go for six months without doing drugs or a year. Um, I've got to go back and somehow erase that divorce from my past or that adultery. You know, I've, I've got to produce 10 years of being faithful to my wife. I've got to produce one week of not using the Internet in a way that this... I've got to go for one month without looking at my portfolio. I've got to give away my entire portfolio. You just can't come bouncing into the church, bouncing to the table, you know, whoopee, I'm free, you know. I mean, that's childish. That's stupid. That's the way children come into their father and mother's presence, but... Uh, with God, we have to be reverent. And of course, what we mean by reverent is certainly not free and joyful. <laughs> you know, but sobered by our sinfulness. Okay? So what will be sufficient? Or let me put it another way. When you did go for a month without looking at your portfolio, when you did give away a lot of money, did it make it better? That next Sunday when you came to church, did you feel like you merited God's attention more? Well, now, the truth is that the Christian life is, is a life of becoming aware of what Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. In other words, when you get rid of the sins of the 20s, you hit the sins of the 30s. And when God enables you to get rid of some of the sins of the 30s, you hit the sins of the 40s and then the sins of the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And the truth is, people in their 80s have sins just as people in their teenage years have sins, you guys. I mean, there are seasons of life, and thank God some sins do leave us, although usually more because God sets up circumstances in such a way that they no longer tempt us. And I'm at the point in life where I'm happy for circumstances to purify me instead of my own brute strength. I'll take purification any, any kind of way I can get it. You know, in fact, I don't mind being a robot, really. Are you all with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, what exactly do you have to impress God with? You know, what righteousness? Well, the truth is, when you're able to do the very thing that you think you have to do in order to come to the table, to come to worship, in order to come to the Lord... When you're done doing that thing, all you are is aware that your motivations in doing that thing were not entirely pure. And that there's an infinitely greater number of things that God has to deal with before you are ready for heaven. So then what? Do we believe like the Roman Catholics do, that um, slowly, through love, God does that work in this life and in purgatory until such time as we are able to come? No. That's precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying no to here. And if you watch and you go along in his argument, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And then he says, but if, what? While seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners as Christ sent a minister of sin. In other words, what's he doing? Enter into the logic of his opponents. His opponents are saying, look, you preach free grace. You preach salvation only through the righteousness of Christ. You realize what you're doing. 
you see all the sin in the church here in Galatia? And there is a lot of sin. We get to the end of the book, as is typically the case, you're going to see that this was a church where you could make the case that they were a bunch of licentious antinomians. They hated the law, and they were giving themselves every kind of sin. All right? Otherwise, why have the ethical commands at the end of the book that you have, right? So they're saying, look, you guys, this is ridiculous. You're preaching grace, and look at the fruit. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. Clearly you can't just do this. And, and so the Apostle Paul's responding to this. He says, all right, you're saying that seeking to be justified in Christ, we've been found to be sinners, and so Christ is a minister of sin. In other words, the preaching of grace produces sin. All right. And he says what? He says, may it never be. He says, absolutely not. I've entered into your brains. I hear your argument, but this is absolutely not the case. And we see the same thing in the book of Romans. In two separate places, we see the same argument being made that it's in fact not true that we give ourselves to sin that grace may abound. All right. But here again, he says, we do not sin that grace may abound. We are not producing sin by believing in grace. He says, verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, it's, it's, it's a question what he's referring to here in this verse. Um, but I believe he's referring to the fact that Having answered their argument that we will sin that grace may abound, he says, absolutely not. May it never be. And then he goes back and engages them and says, look, we have trusted in Christ for salvation. What are we going to do now? We're going to return again and rebuild salvation through works, through ethnic righteousness, through circumcision, through the law. Are we going to go back and rebuild that? And he says then I would prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, we can't do that. It would be sin for us to go back and try to establish our righteousness through works. We must not rebuild what we have once destroyed. And later in the book, we're going to come again to this, where the Apostle Paul shows, and bear with me on this, that this argument of Galatians is not simply focused on justification, but it is focused on sanctification. Okay, This is not just an argument that we're saved by grace and then we're sanctified by works. All right, The Apostle Paul is saying no to that. We cannot rebuild what we destroyed at our entry into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19, he says what? He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And this is where I want to end this morning. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, what is the meaning of this final statement? Well, what Paul is saying here at the end of his text is that it is the law of grace which has caused us to die to the law of works. That now it, it's it's it's. It's a riddle. It's a mystery. It, it's a very... Um, it, 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 it's contradictory. That's what it is. It, it makes absolutely no sense to say, through the law, I died to the law. So I might live to God. But if we think about the, the place of the law, 
particularly in evangelization, that the Apostle Paul teaches us that the law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, or, or our, um, actually our bus driver might be a better analogy. Uh, it's the thing that takes us to the instruction. The law deals with us in such a way that we are completely broken down and our consciences are hopeless. And it is precisely at that point that we are ready for Jesus Christ. This is what he means by dying to the law through the law. As the law is preached to us, we die to any hope that we will be made ready for heaven, that we will please God through our own works. And then we're ready to hear of the work of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, there's no illustration that's, that's going to pull us through this, but if you will think of the time in your life when you had to do a terribly difficult job, um, a job that the more you tried, the worse you got at it. I, you know, think of Adam and surgery rotation. Uh, some of the rest of you, welding, um, being a mother. Uh, it does not matter how well you do the job what you see is only your complete, total failure to do the job. And you think of the Jews under the tutelage of the law, all through the Old Testament, just constant law, law, law. I mean, every aspect of their lives was under the bondage of the law. And then, right about when they thought they were kind of getting it down, what did they hit? Well, they hit the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus heightened the law infinitely by showing them that it wasn't enough for their external actions to be in external conformity to the law, but that even their hearts had to be in conformity. And the one thing you all know is, even when you're able to bring your exterior into some sort of conformity to the law, precisely at that point, you see your inward motivation and you know it's completely corrupt. Okay? And so you've got the Old Testament, it's hopeless, then you hit the Sermon on the Mount, and it's hopeless to a Google. Okay? And this is what the Apostle Paul means when he says, through the law, you died to the law. I mean, how many of you have felt that you merit the attention of God by keeping the law? No. What it does is it drives you forward as just as I am is sunk. It drives you forward as the table is set. And we have here the spiritual presence of Christ in his blood and his body. Okay? Through the law, we die to the law, but it doesn't stop there, does it? What? To live to Christ. Now, I want to read in closing a couple of excerpts from Calvin on this. Bear with me. I don't, you know, normally, you don't like me to read. I mean, not Calvin. <laughs> I'm just full of mistakes today. Uh, that other man, Martin Luther. Listen to what he says on this. Through the law, I'm dead to the law, that I might live unto God. This is a sweet kind of speech and full of consolation when in the Scriptures, and especially in Paul, the law is set against the law, sin against sin, Death against death, captivity against captivity, and hell against hell. The altar against the altar, the lamb against the lamb, the Passover against the Passover. Okay? The law of Moses accuses and condemns me, but against that accusing and condemning law, I have another law, which is what? The law of grace and liberty. The false apostles taught this doctrine 
unless you live to the law, you live not to God. That is to say, unless you live after the law, you are dead before God. But Paul says quite the contrary. Unless you are dead to the law, you cannot live to God. Therefore, we must mount up to this heavenly altitude that we may be assured that we are far above the law, yea, that we are utterly dead unto the law. Paul, through a vehement zeal and indignation of spirit, calls grace itself a law. Christ is made the law of the law, the sin of sin, and the death of the death. While Christ is the law, he's also liberty. While he is sin, he is righteousness. While he is death, he is life. And because this is a strange and marvelous manner of speaking... Therefore, it enters more easily into the mind and it sticks faster in the memory. When he says, I through the law am dead to the law, it sounds more sweetly than if he should say, I through liberty am dead to the law. For he sets before us, as it were, a certain picture as if the law was fighting against the law. As though he should say, O law, if you can accuse me, terrify me, and bind me, I will set above and against you another law, that is to say, another tyrant, another oppressor, who shall accuse you and bind you and oppress you. Indeed, you are my tormentor, but I have another tormentor, even Jesus Christ, who will torment thee to death. And when you are thus bound and tormented and suppressed, then am I at liberty." Likewise, if the devil scourges me, I have a stronger devil which shall in turn scourge him and overcome him. And so then grace is a law, not to me, for it doesn't bind me, but to my law. This law so binds that it cannot hurt me anymore. So I ask you this morning, in closing, as you think of these arguments of the Apostle Paul. They're theological, doctrinal arguments. They depend on the meaning of words. They use words in different ways so that law can mean one thing here and one thing there in the same sentence, okay? As you engage these theological arguments that God has chosen to give you, what is it this morning that is of such large spiritual weight, such guilt, that you are not worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ? What is it that has you in bondage, unable to hope in the blood of Christ? What do you have to do to merit the attention of God? What makes you worthy of worship of the Lord's Supper, of membership in a church? And the answer is nothing. (laughs) All right, bear with me. Okay? Here's a little mantra to repeat in your brain. It just came to me. Works. What are they good for? And you answer, absolutely nothing. Okay? Your works are worth nothing. Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Let's pray.
pray with me. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Please stand and open to your bulletin and we'll keep singing. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul 